We're turning uh, to Acts chapter 10. And we will be considering that chapter in its entirety, but um, we'll just read the first few verses. Um, well, not f- we'll read the majority of the chapter, but we'll save the latter portion uh, for later on in the sermon. We'll read the rest later. We'll go up to verse uh, 35 to get us started. So that's Acts chapter 10. And this is the word of God. Give careful attention now to the reading of it. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. And about the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon, who is called Peter. He's lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having relayed everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. Now, the next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray, and he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance, and he saw the heavens opened, and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth, In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles, or some versions, uh, creeping things, and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I've never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times. And the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man, who was well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you had to say. So he invited them in to be his guests. The next day he rose and went away with them. And some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him, and on the following day they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in 
and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked them why you sent for me. Cornelius said, Four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard, and your alms have been remembered before God. Send, therefore, to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Thus far, the reading of God's word. The, the events of Acts 10 and Acts 11, which continue this story of Cornelius, are perhaps the most important in the book of Acts. Uh, we can deduce that for several reason, right, reasons. One would be their location in the book, right in the central portion of Luke's account of the, the work of the apostles. He places this story. That's always important to note. Also, just the amount of space that they take up, two full chapters. But it's also critically important, friends, and I don't want you to miss this, It's important because of the clear and unconfused picture of the gospel that it paints for us. Not all things in the Bible are equally plain. And yet, the things that matter the most, God not only makes clear, but He underscores. He he highlights, He even shouts from the heavens as He does here in Acts chapter 10, so that we would not miss it. We can argue until the cows come home about various points of theology, but there's one thing that there can be no debate on, and that is what it means to belong to God. And here it is. We are sinners saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's the gospel. And in Acts 10, it is a gospel that is first envisioned by special divine revelation. Secondly, it's embodied uh, through the actions of both Peter and Cornelius. And finally, it is a gospel that is powerfully and boldly explained through Peter's, uh, through Peter's preaching to the Gentile audience gathered before him. And that good news is summed up for us in Peter's initial statement there in verse 34. What is the good news? Truly, I understand God shows no partiality. Truly, I understand, Peter is saying, that God doesn't play favorites. If you're a Christian today, it's not because of something that you've done. It's not because you have done something that has won you over into God's good graces. It's not because you belong to the right club. You, you voted for the right political uh, candidate. It's not because of your skin color. It's not because of the language that you speak. It's not because of your heritage. It's not because of anything 
that you can lay claim to. It is all because of God's free grace. If you're a Christian today, it's because of God's free grace. If you would like to become a Christian today, and you should want to become a Christian today if you are not, well, then the same is true for you. It's not because of anything that you have done, could do, will do, have to do. It's because of God's free grace. The reason is because none is righteous. Not even one. That's what the Bible tells us. That means that that there wouldn't even be any that could rise to the top if God were to pick favorites. There's none to choose from. And yet out of this, out of this pool uh, of fallen and depraved humanity, God has shed his undeserved, his unearned grace and mercy upon, as Peter says, any who fear him. Paul would go on later in Romans chapter 1 to say, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation First for the Jew, but then also for the Greek. We're learning here in Acts 10 what that also to the Greek means in a very powerful way. We're learning that this Jewish religion that had been well established and around for for thousands of years actually wasn't only for Jews after all. And we learn that first by this vision or two visions, a set of visions. And so, firstly, this morning, the gospel envisioned two visions in the first 16 verses, one for the Gentile Cornelius, the other for the Jew Peter. Both visions ultimately serve the same purpose, which is to prepare the hearts of these men to receive the reality of the gospel in all of its implications and all of its outworkings. The first vision, if you're looking back at at verse 1, and following is fairly straightforward. It comes to a man named Cornelius. We're told that he is a soldier in the Roman army. He is in charge of actually, he's a leader in the army. He's in charge of a hundred soldiers. That's why it's called a centurion. A century, a hundred years, centurion, hundred soldiers. One who is over a hundred soldiers is called a centurion. Um, and he belonged to uh, the Italian cohort. A cohort was a word for 600 soldiers. And I don't know where we get that from, six and cohort, but either way, that's, that's where he belongs to this uh, Roman or this Italian cohort. Uh, he's been stationed in Caesarea, which isn't too far from Joppa. That's where we last left Peter when he raised um, Tabitha uh, back from the dead. Uh, it's along the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, Caesarea was the provincial capital of Judea under Roman governors. That means it was the seat of Roman oppression against the Jewish people. This was the headquarters. This was HQ for uh, Rome as they sought to rule and, and yes, oppress uh, the people of Judea. And so this basic kind of background information is meant to clue us into the fact that there's little reason for somebody like Peter and somebody like Cornelius to get along. And yet, even though he's employed by the imperial forces that oppressed the Jews, Cornelius himself had been won over by this Jewish God. He's described as a pious man, a devout man, verse 2. Later on, uh, he's described by those who have sent him as as somebody who's well-regarded by all the Jewish People, verse 22, 
upright and a God-fearing man. A God-fearer is what Jews called Gentiles who believed in their God and yet balked at the idea of, of um, accepting wholesale Jewish custom. And so they balked at the idea of circumcision, of ceremonial laws, of dietary restrictions. They didn't, uh, they didn't um, submit to those things, and yet they still believed in this God of the Jewish people. This is the God that he prays to, the God that he offers alms up to in faith. And this God comes to him in a most gracious manner in a vision, speaking by means of an angel to assure Cornelius that his faith has not been in vain. And he's instructed to send for this one called Peter. Peter, who will explain in more detail these assuring words of salvation. According to chapter 11, verse 13 and 14, the angel said to Cornelius, send to Joppa and bring Simon, who's called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and your household. It's as though... Cornelius is, he's almost there. He just needs a, a, a little more information. Well, you'll get that information from Peter. And through his proclamation, you will be saved. That's the first vision. We fast forward to the next day, to another vision. There's some similarities. Uh, it comes to both of the men while they're praying. Uh, but Peter's vision is a bit more complicated, and that's because it's a, it's a bit more important you notice that he becomes hungry when he goes to pray. I'm sure that's happened to uh, many of us. We're ready to pray, and there are any number of distractions that keep us from praying, and sometimes it's our empty stomach. And yet God plays off of his hunger pangs to teach him a lesson. You're hungry, Peter? Well, I've got something for you. And he goes into a trance, and he sees uh, this great sheet descending from the heavens. Think of it like a, a, a picnic blanket. Filled with food, all kinds of animals for food. And yet the animals were those that heretofore were believed to be entirely off limits to the Jews. These animals and birds and uh, creeping things, reptiles. The Old Testament background here is Leviticus 11, which made a distinction between certain animals that, that the people of Yahweh could eat and certain animals that they couldn't eat. And these Restrictions, friends, they had nothing to do with health or hygiene and everything to do with holiness. Remember, to be holy means to be set apart. And so having a different diet than the rest of the nations was a clear way that people would know this nation is different than the rest of us. That, that's the point, to make a separation, a distinction. And that, that, that call of holiness to be set apart from other Nations from other people who do not worship the living and true God, that still applies to Christians today. Look with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. We'll turn there briefly, 2 Corinthians chapter 6. And we pick up there in verse 14, and it's going to actually quote some from Leviticus. But we see that this principle of holiness still applies, as Paul writes, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out 
from their midst, that is, go out from the world and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing, then I will welcome you. I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. You see, friends, it's the fact that the pure and holy God dwells with his people, that they are to be pure and holy as well. But today, the distinction between Christians and non-Christians is an entirely moral one. But it wasn't that way under the Old Covenant. That moral distinction was illustrated through a material way. Visible, tangible distinctions were put in place, like the foods that people ate. The problem, of course, became that the Jewish people tacitly assumed that they weren't just different from the other people, but they were better than them. They were better than the Gentiles. Uh, As one example of their holiness high horse, they would often call Gentiles dogs. You're nothing better than dogs. They also forgot that food was not actually a moral issue in and of itself. They forgot that it was a symbol Uh, We hear the phrase, you are what you eat, and that was the mantra of the day in the Old Covenant. They really believed that if you ate something that was unclean, according to Levitical custom, that made you unclean. And Jesus himself, you remember, had to address this issue. Speaking to the Pharisees in Mark chapter 7, Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, And then is expelled. Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. Friends, the the organ of holiness is the heart, not the stomach. And yet that was a lesson that was hard to stomach. There had been thousands of years of Levitical and ceremonial laws and customs that had been impressed upon the people of Israel. Thousands of years of prejudice building against people who did not keep these customs. It had become so embedded in their way of thinking, so ingrained in their way of life, that the inclusion of the Gentiles was a true, a real stumbling block for Jews. And it was a stumbling block for Peter, that's why when God shows him this, this picnic blanket coming down with all sorts of animals that he can eat, and he says, Peter, you're hungry, rise and eat, kill and eat. Peter says, by no means. No, Lord. It's as though he says, I won't eat this food because that's what Gentiles do. And so to Peter and to other Jews, giving up ceremonial restrictions was not viewed as a means of it was a celebration, as though they were finally getting to add to their menu after all these years. They, they didn't come with excitement, anticipation, as we might on our cheat day, as we're, you know, uh, trying to stick with a diet to Peter. And this is important to understand. This was God taking away from him his badge of honor that he held so dearly that said, I am actually better than other people. And you can see how tightly he holds on to this badge of honor because God has to tell him three times, three times. What does he say to him? He says, what God has made clean, do not call common. The voice seems to say, Peter, don't you dare make distinctions because I do not play favorites. Peter's heard the message before. He had heard and read of it in the prophets. 
This is not, this isn't new. They were told, the Jewish people, in the scriptures, that the Messiah would come and be a light to whom? To the Gentiles. He had heard Jesus himself declare all foods clean. He had been commissioned himself to go with the other disciples, not just to the, to the nasty Samaritans, but even to the ends of the earth and all of the commoners that it held. And yet, it's still a difficult message to accept. Cornelius would have been a difficult man to accept. So God softens Peter's heart and he prepares him to accept him through this vision. And it seems to kind of have an immediate effect. If you look to verses 17 and following, as we now see, secondly, uh, the gospel embodied. Peter now living out the truth that God has just revealed to him. And we see that in the way that he welcomes in Cornelius' ambassadors into his home. Remember, they were Gentiles too. And Peter himself would say in verse 28 to Cornelius, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anybody from another nation. Uh, he's, he's admitting that what he's doing here is taboo. Uh, because of the strict dietary restrictions uh, that were in place, it became very complicated for a Jew to fellowship with a Gentile, to, to be with a Gentile, to be in their homes, because they're always afraid, what if I accidentally touch something that's unclean? And so it, it became kind of just the rule that we just won't do it at all. Um, not that that was ever, in, uh, ever commanded, but that, that kind of became the practice. Derek Thomas, he explains that a parallel might be parents telling their children not to get into the car of strangers. That's not because all strangers have bad intentions, but that blanket rule ensures protection every time. And so in a similar way, the blanket rule just to not fraternize with Gentiles ever, just to be safe, that, that was put into place just to be sure they didn't accidentally contaminate themselves by touching something unclean. And yet, what does Peter do? The ambassadors are sent. Verse 20, the Spirit of God instructs him, Rise, go down, and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter obeys. The gospel that was envisioned is now embodied. And then verse 23, these words, So he invited them in. To be his guests. James Boyce imagines that Peter could have said, Well, it's nice to meet you, but we need to stay out here on the porch and talk. Or, I'm glad you've come and you visited, but I think there's an inn down the way. You can stay there. Or maybe you could camp out at the beach. I'm sure you'll be comfortable there. But you can't come in my house. And yet that's not what he says. That's not what happens. He invited them in to be his guests. In the Greek, that, that implies they stayed overnight. There's something so rich in that statement that, that concludes that paragraph. He invited them in to be his guests. He, he gets the gospel. The gospel always means welcome to all kinds of people. The gospel really does come with a house key. Now, it's, it's one thing for a, a Jew to let a Gentile into their home where perhaps they would have some control over who touched what and, and what they were going to have for dinner. It's quite another thing for a Jew to go into the home of a Gentile, but that's what happens next. Verse 25, when Peter entered, the NIV makes it more clear, as Peter entered the house, that is, of Cornelius. Again, he points out, verse 28, this is, this is not normal. This is unlawful according to our customs. But if entering 
Cornelius' home and associating with his family was an embodiment of gospel humility, so was Cornelius' act of falling on his face before Peter. Uh, imagine it, this leader uh, uh, in the Roman army falling on the dirt, groveling on the dirt before one of his subjects. The gospel has come home to him as well. Both men have been transformed by God's welcome to them. Sinners as they are, and so they can welcome others. They can defer to others. And it would be good for us to ask ourselves, do we embody the gospel that we have experienced? Do you recognize that, that God, in a very real sense, has done much more than just uh, uh, bowed in the dirt before you, but in the person of Jesus Christ, he was made like you. He, he walked among the dust of this world. He, he took on our frame and he bowed his head at the cross to you. And, and, and what we read in verse 23, so he invited them in to be his guests. That is what God has done for each and every one of us. Into his heavenly home, the door is wide open. And he says, come, spend the night. No, spend forever with me. Do we embody the gospel that we have experienced? Of course, there's more than just doing that, though, to being a Christian. It's more than just what we do with our actions. Do not believe the aphorism that you can preach the gospel, and if necessary, you have to use words that, that has no biblical backing. Peter doesn't believe that, and we see that Cornelius himself doesn't want that, because in his search to learn more about the gospel, he wants Peter to do what? He wants him to preach. Look at verse 33. I sent you at once, and you've been kind enough to come. Now, th now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you've been commanded by the Lord. And then we read, so Peter opened his mouth and said. And so we see, thirdly and finally today, the gospel explained. Let me read this mini-sermon from Peter's to the end of the chapter. Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him... And does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, that he is Lord of all, you yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good, and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all people, but to us who have been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. And then Peter declared... Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? 
And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And then they asked him to remain for some days. Here we have, according to one commentator, one of the clearest examples of how the young church grew and spread through the preaching, the preaching of the word of God. And there's too much uh, in this sermon of Peter's to unpack in detail, but it is simple enough to understand. He gives that thesis statement right from the start. God shows no partiality. God welcomes all. God is for everyone. Everyone who fears him and does what is acceptable in his sight receives him. It's a sermon essentially with one major point, that Jesus is all. There's a totality. This word all or every comes up again and again. In every nation, anyone who fears him is acceptable to him, Peter says, echoing Joel chapter 2, verse 23. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone who comes to Jesus is saved. He alone has power to save. He is the Lord of all, verse 36. He's the judge of the living and the dead. That is everyone, verse 42. Nobody escapes his rule or his reign. And because of this, Peter and and the disciples have been commanded to preach this message to all people. The message is verse 43. Everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. Everyone. Everybody here today. And then a beautiful thing happens. The Holy Spirit comes down confirming that message The message was that the gospel is for everyone. And on that day, everybody who heard that gospel believed. And so they all received new life in the Holy Spirit. And more than that, they're baptized as a sign that they now belong to this new covenant community. And don't you love Peter's question? He says, can anybody withhold water from these who have clearly been converted? And the answer, of course, is no. What a a long way Peter's come in just a number of days, right? Uh, from a beginning at first to refuse, uh, refusing to accept unclean food, to welcoming in unclean people into his home, to then preaching the good news in the home of an unclean person, and now to compelling every other Jew who's watching, you better accept these people into the church. He's come a long way. And the reason, of course, is because, as I've said, or as Peter said, truly I understand God shows no partiality. God does not play favorites. Friends, God is too big for his gospel to be restricted to just one people group. Uh, God's well of love is too deep. It's so deep that every sinner uh, could come to it and, and drink to the fill and it would never run dry. Every sinner could do that. Every sinner must do that. And yet we know that not every sinner does. The important thing today is that you, dear sinner, do. That today you run into the wide open arms of God. That you come to that well of his love and you drink deeply. I want you to know there are at least two Wrong ways to read and respond to the truths that have been recorded for us in Acts chapter 10. uh, As we talk about the universal call 
of salvation, how God welcomes even the low and despised sinners. The first error is this. The first error is to assume that God welcomes any and all sinners just as they are. Full stop. Now, this is, of course, the message of the liberal church, and it's a false gospel. Morality does matter. Yes, God accepts us as we are, but he never leaves us there. Again, what does Peter say? He says, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. And so Acts chapter 10 and other passages like it have been twisted by people to say, look, I can live in this kind of lifestyle because God has these arms that are wide open to receive any and all kind of people. While the gospel destroys disparities among people groups, it does not destroy the need for holy living. God accepts Gentiles in Acts chapter 10, yes, but even then they are baptized, which is a symbol of being cleansed, of putting on the new man in Christ Jesus. So the first error is in thinking that 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 universal call that goes out to all people, even the lone, the despised, and the rejected, is, is somehow a means by which we're meant to interpret that morality, holiness doesn't matter. A second error is to read this story and think that it's all about how since God accepts all kinds of people, uh, we need to as well. Now, that is absolutely true. Don't get me wrong. It would be an appropriate point of application uh, from this text. And in fact, we will focus on it in more detail next week where I think it has the greater weight of, of the thrust of that chapter. But the main point of this chapter... The main point of chapter 10 is not what sinners will you accept into your life. The main point of chapter 10 is for you to recognize you are the sinner that God is willing to accept into his life. We must start there. And then we will change. Then we will do what is acceptable and pleasing in his sight when we recognize we start with grace. In 1878, a man by the name of John Ironside was on his deathbed, overcome with typhoid. He was only 27 years old. And John Ironside would soon pass away and leave his wife uh, to raise their two-year-old son by herself. That son was Harry Ironside, sometimes known as Henry Ironside, who would go on to become uh, one of the most influential Bible teachers, preachers um, in the early 1900s. And later on, he went on to record what his mother told him about the night that his father passed away. As he lay there in the throes of this fever, he kept mumbling something, and the family couldn't quite make it out or understand what he was saying or why he was saying it. He, He was saying, a great sheet... And wild beasts, and, and he would trail off. And then he would begin again, a, a great sheet, and, and wild beasts, and he couldn't finish it. And finally they realized he's referring to Peter's vision from Acts chapter 10. He's trying to quote verse 12. And he starts again, a great sheet. Wild beasts, and, and his friend knelt down and, and whispered into his ear, John, 
course, quoting from the King James. It says, creeping things. A great sheet and wild beasts and creeping things. And John Ironside said, oh yes, that's how I got in. Just a poor, good-for-nothing, creeping thing. But I got in by grace alone. Are there any words better to be upon our lips as we enter eternity than to acknowledge that we have heaven not because of anything our hands have done but purely because God's grace has been poured out upon us poor, good-for-nothing, creeping things that we are and he has prepared for us a place where we will be so much more. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you that it's free, it's unearned, it's undeserved. We thank you that it comes to all. And my prayer is that all who are here today would respond the way that Cornelius and his household and those gathered inside responded to Peter's proclamation. That there would be sincere, true belief and repentance. We thank you that your arms of love are so wide that you can welcome in a whole multitude of sinners. And so we have no reason to shrink away from you today. No, we have every reason to come and to bless the God of grace. We do that in Jesus' name. Amen.